So I'm Nicolas Bornels of Capital Inc. and I would like to welcome you all today to our webinar. Uh, our webinar on a very timely and interesting topic, uh, innovative ways to access the US capital markets. Uh, the US capital markets are the uh, market of choice for uh, issuers from all over the world uh, who, who want to raise capital uh, and they list in the United States. Uh, we have with us today, so uh, our webinar today is going to explore a number of alternatives, not just the mainstream IPO, but a number of other uh, innovative uh, ways to uh, access the US capital markets and, and list uh, in the US. So I'm delighted that uh, we have with us today two uh, experts. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Alexander Ibrahim. He is the head of international listings at the New York Stock Exchange. And we have Ted Horton from Sweden Kissel. Capital Link is privileged to work with both uh, Sweden Kissel and the New York Stock Exchange very closely. And I'm really delighted that uh, we have the opportunity to bring this very thoughtful uh, uh, panel to you today. We are gonna start with uh, a brief presentation by Alex on uh, what has happened to the US capital markets uh, year to date. And then we will open it up um, for discussion with Ted and Alex. And please feel free to submit your questions anytime. And after our roundtable discussion, uh, Alex and Ted will be uh, answering to whatever questions we submit. So Alex and Ted, thank you for being with us. And Alex, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks, Nicholas. Pleasure to be here today. Pleasure to be with Edge in this uh, webinar. I'm gonna start with a quick presentation, just giving a little, an overview of what we're seeing in the US capital markets. And then we will go, you know, be having a more uh, dynamic conversation on some of the topics that we'll be covering. Just, just upload this here. Can you see the deck? Uh, just give me one second, sorry for that. Technology, just give me one second, gentlemen. Here we go. Um, perfect. Well, welcome to the NYSE. So what do we see this year so far is a very dynamic market. When you look at the major indexes that cover the US capital markets, they're all time high. You see the Dow Jones there, you see the S&P 500 and NASDAQ all perform extremely well, way above previous years. And this is very interesting because we have seen a very strong interest of companies coming to the market. And if you look on a quarterly basis in the, in the top left quadrant, you can see on a quarterly basis, the number of companies that have come to the market and also the proceeds. 2020, even we experienced, uh, we are in the middle of this pandemic, the market has performed extremely well. Since the beginning of 2020, we have seen IPOs getting done, but not only small IPOs in the tech space, but also very large transactions that came to the market. September was an outstanding month for the NYSE, where we had huge transactions, bringing the value of capital raised in the quarter, third quarter of 2020 at all time high. This year, as you can see, will be probably one of the best years of the New York Stock Exchange. 
But when you look and you go a deep dive in what type of transactions we're seeing in the marketplace, and we'll be talking to, about this later on, about 51% of the deals that have been done in the US capital markets is actually in the SPAC space, followed by healthcare and technology. But if you, this is by the number, but if you look at in proceeds, technology and SPACs are the two largest pockets of types of companies that actually are raising capital. And if you look at pricing, which is always a wonderful measure of how the market is behaving, almost 71% of companies that have raised capital in the US this year are trading above the IPO price. So this is a very good dynamic in the market. At the NYSE, we're expecting uh, the rest of the year to see very, very active. We have a Chinese company pricing tomorrow, uh, a company in the beauty sector that might raise around $500 million. Of course, this is public information. And we have a few specs in the pipeline and potentially a company, another company from China coming to the market in the beginning of December. So very active pipeline for us. And we are, and when we look at the first quarter and second quarter, continues to be very exciting. And why those companies are coming to the US capital markets, as I saw, as I show with you, very dynamic marketplace. They want to have access to the deepest market in the world, access to liquidity, have the opportunity to broaden their shareholder base, create a currency in the ADR form, dollar denominated to make acquisition. So a US listing, either you can do through an IPO, direct listing or a quotation, provide companies with access to this very dynamic marketplace. And when you look at what we, the, the NYC on its own is an extremely international market. We have on average 80%, 82% penetration. If you look at all the non-US companies that are listed on either uh, stocks, stock exchange in the US, 82% of them are on the NYSC. And these are companies in the shipping sector, technology sector, biotech, industrial, so a very diversified footprint across the world. Then we're also home for very complex transactions. And some of them, um, your, some of the, uh, uh, the companies that are actually participating in this panel could be considered something in the near future. Early this year, we listed Natura, a Brazilian company that actually was listed on the local exchange B3 they acquire Avon on an m and transaction. And upon com the combination of the two companies, they created a new, a new company in the US that is listed with us and also shares listed in the B3. We also listed Spotify. We'll talk more about that later. Was the first ever direct listing to, uh, in the US capital market. So we had the pleasure of working with Spotify with the rules, with the SEC to create this mechanism, extremely unique, very innovative to help companies to list with us uh, using the direct listing process. And very quickly here, uh, Ted talked, uh, talked about uh, different ways of accessing the US capital markets. As you know, there are many forms uh, that companies can choose. Today, we're seeing you know, four big uh, initiatives in the US that companies can choose from, especially the ones that are based outside the US. You can do a traditional IPO where 
you know, there is no public market before, but uh, you have the opportunity to raise capital. There is also now the opportunity of conducting direct listings, and we'll talk much more about that, the process and the mechanics. But these are companies that actually in the private market, they want to be public traded and they do not need to raise capital. So companies like Spotify, Asana, Slack, and Palantir chose this process to become publicly traded and they did not have to go through the IPO process. So at this particular point, there is no capital raise. We can talk about what we have with, with the SEC to create another mechanism to be able to offer a company to offer shares at the time the direct listing. This is a new, another, we can talk about that a little bit later. And SPAC, which has become the number one provider of new issuances in the US market, is another way. Many companies are um, backed by very well-known uh, uh, well-known uh, executives. They are raising capital in the US market, some of them raising multi-billion dollars to eventually do an M&A transaction where they will help a company in the public market become publicly traded on a US exchange. We have been leading the space year to date, 60% of capital raising in the SPAC business has been done on the NYSE. And we continue to grow this franchise, not only listing the, uh, the specs, but also when they find uh, an M&A opportunity, or we call the DISPAC, those companies remain listed with us. And quotation, we'll talk about this because this is a very, it's a non-US phenomenon. These are companies that actually listed in a local exchange, and they decided to access the US capital markets with an offering or without an offering, and they issue shares or they just list those shares in the US to increase visibility, to, uh, to uh, be able to diversify their shareholder base and to certain companies in certain sectors, even to have an adjustment in valuation. So this is another way for companies to access the US capital markets. Ted? Wonderful. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry, Alex. Uh, so thank you very much for giving us uh, this very uh, detailed introductory presentation. So let's start by asking both of you, uh, I think the most obvious question right now, how has the pandemic uh, crisis affected the US capital markets? I mean, we have seen that the markets have done quite well in terms of performance, but how do you see the capital raising activity and the overall sentiment? So maybe I can start with the Ted and then we go to Alex since Alex gave us the... Uh... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to start with that. I mean, I think, I think as, as Alex just showed and as those numbers have showed, um, at, at the high level, the US markets have obviously performed very, very well. Um, and, 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 as, and as Alex's slides mentioned, in terms of the numbers of deals and the amount of capital raised, um, it's been a very good year. It's been near a record year. I think obviously the the the, the pandemic uh, has had a different impact on different sectors. So there's obviously been a very different view of what 2020 has been. If you're um, in the tech space, or in particularly in the biotech space, or you're a um, or you are Zoom, uh, then if you are in 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 the hospitality sector or in the cruise ship sector. Um, 
we work a lot in a space that is in is in shipping and energy, and and, and the market has been adversely impacted, I think, by by the pandemic there. So from their perspective, whether it's a new entrant looking to come in or whether it's existing companies looking to the market, you know, th their stock prices have not been um, at levels that have encouraged them to come into the markets. But I think, uh, Nicholas, if you're asking, the markets themselves have, have clearly performed very well. But again, it is very sector specific as, as to where you're looking at this from. Yeah. Uh, to complement what Ted said from an NYSE's perspective, from a capital market's perspective, once like in the beginning, we, we started the year very excited about uh, our pipeline opportunities uh, that we saw from around the world, including the US of course, companies coming to the market, big names. Once the pandemic hit the US markets uh, in early March, mid-March, we honestly thought that the market was going to be completely dead this year. But uh, a few weeks, maybe a month after we were completely the market, after the volatility up and down in the market, we're starting to see specs coming to the market, which was kind of interesting because we're not expecting that. And little by little, we're starting to see biotech companies, you know, companies that have exposure to COVID or they are working in related uh uh, segments of the biotech space, those companies came to the market and they're all pricing very well. And right after that, we're starting to see companies in the tech space that actually were benefiting for working from home, uh, food delivery, things that we are not expecting uh, in a pre-COVID environment. And those companies came to the market and they were priced very well, very well received. But what was interesting from a non-US perspective that we're starting to see the same model outside the US. And companies starting with China, companies coming to the market, raising capital. We saw companies from Europe, from Latin America, from Canada. And if you look at the type of companies that came, the sector, they were, the majority of them were, of course, let's use SPAC as a sector, but it's not a sector, it's a product, followed by biotech and technology. And then tech consumer tech, more towards the third quarter. And this was not only a US phenomenon, but actually a global phenomenon. And that's what we expect to see in the beginning in the first quarter of 2021 and the second quarter of 2021, because we're uh, pitching those companies right now. Very interesting and very optimistic. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, by the way, going into the next question, um, as I mentioned in the opening statement, the U.S. has been the destination of choice for most, if, uh, for all the companies that aspire to raise capital. The U.S., I think, is the deepest pool of capital around the world. So can you tell us uh, why would somebody choose, you know, if I'm an issuer, a private or a public issuer who wants to do a listing, why would I come to the US uh, as opposed to going to other regional uh, markets, London, Oslo, Hong Kong, and so on? So what makes the US uh, and of course Niger uh, the destination of choice? So maybe I can start with uh, Ted and then I go to Alex. And... Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think 
I mean, I think the, the, the short answer is it's still where the capital is. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the US markets, as, as we are saying, are still the, the deepest pool of capital. Um, and and it's, so it's, it's where the capital is and it's where the liquidity is, which of course is what is, what is the end game for, for any company that's looking to come in and to list in, in the markets. And I think that, um, you know, I think that there's obviously there's, there's the, the, the dominance maybe of the US, you know, the questions start to come up of where Asia is rising, but I think, and it's not, it's not a surprise to say, or it's not controversial for me to say, is it the recent example um, of, of maybe the anti-PO shows is that there's still um, the, the, how do I put it? I mean, the, the US regulatory market is still the gold standard, I think, in, in international standards. And I think that that still has, um, it still has value uh, to investors. And, and that, of course, translates into being attractive to, to issuers um, and aspiring issuers. At a very high level, I think that's really what, what drives that. Thank you. Alex? Yeah, I mean, as Ted mentioned, uh, the US capital market is the deepest market in the world. And if you look at the type of investors that actually operate in the US capital markets, they tend to be extremely diversified. And you even, you even have access, if you're listed here, to the retail market, which is very vibrant in the US, as you know, especially this year, we have seen a lot of trading, you know, retail trading in the US exchange. So the market is very deep, very liquid. We have diversification, which is very important. So for a company that is listed in the local market, I mean, maybe that's plenty. They don't need to be in the US market, but there are certain sectors of the economy having a dual listing, or if they are planning to do an IPO, conduct the IPO solely in the US market or in conjunction to both markets could be an alternative because they would be able to tap into this pool of liquidity that otherwise by just being listed locally, they would have no problems, will be more complicated for them to access this liquidity. Let me just give an example. We're doing an analysis for a Brazilian company in the financial sector and the peers are listed the, on, with us on the NYSE. If you look at the share beholder base of this Brazilian financial service company, that is just listed on the B3 in Sao Paulo, and you compare to their peers in the US, the shareholder composition is completely different. The local, play, the local company has a huge participation of local funds, which is very good. Brazil is a very deep market, a little bit of retail, but when you look at their peers, they do have the US investors that are actually looking at the financial sector. They have the Brazilian, uh, dedicated funds and the emerging market dedicated funds that trade through the NYSE. So by being cross-listed, you're really actually complementing this liquidity that you would have only in the local market. And remember, Ted, I think you know this, a lot of the funds, there are and, uh, many of the funds that are in the US that are looking to op for opportunities outside the US, they cannot trade for many different reasons in local exchange. It could be maybe a technical issue that they cannot use foreign currency when they're using the models or there are some restrictions on their bylaw and even lack of understanding how to trade in a local exchange given the barriers, the regulatory framework 
in certain countries. So having ADRs here, either on OTC level one, a lot of companies have done that. The shipping space is a great example, or even companies from Europe, Canada, they have an opportunity to tap into this market. By being listed on the NYSE, registered with the SEC, the opportunities are even wider because more funds will be able to trade it. Alex, be, sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to add one point. I think it's important to note too. I mean, I think you know we're we're we're, we're talking we're talking today sort of, of 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 these alternative opportunities in the U.S. and I think how the U.S. markets, both the regulatory side and the SEC, and certainly the the NYSE and the exchanges are trying to make it easier to come in. Um, but I do think it's worth noting is that the, the other markets, whether they be foreign markets or whether they be 144A markets in the US, let's say other than the public listings, they, they, I think they can be very complementary um, to sort of the, the, the end goal, let's say, which is to have a listing on the New York Stock Exchange or on a US exchange. And just an example of that is, again, in, in the shipping space is an area where we spend a lot of time in, you know, a, a well-worn model there is to go out and to do capital raises um, in, in foreign markets. Oslo is one market that's particularly friendly to, I think, to shipping and to energy. Um, it can be done very quickly. Um, a lot of the capital that still goes there is the US, but that very much is is viewed as, or has has been viewed traditionally as a stepping stone to allow companies to raise capital initially and quickly, um, and then transition back into the U.S. Whether it's through a quotation listing, whether it's through a traditional IPO, any number of ways to come in. So, I think, and just my point being in this this conversation is that the the other markets, let's say, can still be very complementary to the the main U.S. Uh, listings. And, and traditional capital raising opportunities that are here. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100% because local companies, I think they should be listed at local markets. The US market is really to complement this liquidity and create some adjustments, could be valuation, maybe refine the shareholder base to mirror a little bit more of their US traded peers. So yes, I agree. And the case that I mentioned, the financial sector in Brazil, it is the perfect example because if you're just listed locally, plenty of liquidity in the local market, very strong shareholder base. The U.S. capital markets will add this layer that they don't have access by just being listed locally. So you really uh, brought me now to the next set of questions. I had in mind to, uh, to ask you to take us through the various options, because we, we talked about this innovative ways, alternative ways to access the US capital market. So let's start uh, with the first one. Uh, I'd like to take us through to, to have your, um, your uh, brain power uh, take us through the various alternatives. I'm a private company and I'd like to get listed in the US for the first time. I am already uh, a publicly listed company in another exchange and I would like to list in the US raising capital or not raising capital and then talk about SPACs. But since uh, our discussion was at the point of uh, the uh, dual market complementarity, let's start with that. So I'm a company that is listed overseas in the local exchange and I would like to tap the US capital markets with or without capital raising. Can you take us through the process uh, and exactly talk about the benefits and, and uh, how to do it. 
So maybe uh, have, have you start. Yeah, maybe can start on that one. Alex, the floor is yours. Oh, uh, I thought Dad was gonna kick oh. off. <laughs> I can, Dad, I can, go ahead, Alex. Go ahead. I, yeah, yeah. So maybe yeah. Okay. So from uh, this is from a really a capital markets point of view. Ted will highlight more the legal implications. But if the companies publicly trade in the local market and they want to list in the U.S., they have two options. They can raise capital and not raise capital. And the two, the two formats kind of go hand in hand. So if you want to be listed in the U.S. market on a regulated exchange, either on NYSC or on our competitor, you have to be registered with the SEC. You have to comply with Sarbanes-Oxley. You have to follow the disclosure requirements from the NYSC, it is, you know, a little bit, the requirements are a little bit higher. If you decide to do this, you can just do a quotation without capital raising, or you can do what we call a follow on in the US in conjunction with the listing. So those two options are available. But there are times the companies don't wanna do that because they wanna take the first step. They wanna, you know, let me test the waters. Let me see how the US market will look at my company so they can opt for what's called an ADR level one or a OTC listings, which is, you know, for some companies that is the right choice, makes sense for them. And eventually they can upgrade to a level two. So that is the capital markets overview. But I think that maybe you want to talk a little bit more about the regulatory requirements, right? Sure. I mean, the, the, the process and, and, I mean, I don't know that the, um, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of limit this to coming in and doing a, a listing. The ADRs are obviously going to be something that's been out there for some time and a slightly separate opportunity. Um, but I think, you know, Nicholas, to your question is it, it obviously, you, you obviously have to depend if a client comes and, and is having this conversation is what, what is the best strategy for me to get to the U.S.? The question, of course, is it capital? Are they looking to get capital or are they looking to get the listing? Um, have the liquidity for the shares, have the exposure to the U.S. and the U.S. investors, as Alex mentioned, to be important to sort of expand that investor base. Um, and there are also some other regulatory issues um, for future capital raisings that are advantageous for companies to be able to come into the U.S. and be what we call a seasoned issuer. Um, so basically is to be registered with the U.S., um, obtain a listing, and then that means that in the future, typically after 12 months, then the, the capital raising um, process with the SEC can be more streamlined um, and can be done um, sort of behind the scenes, let's say the use of shelf registration statements is what I'm getting at. Um, so that's one of, I think, the drivers for, for people to, to come in, uh, get the listing here without the immediate need for capital. Um, as Alex said, the, the, the process for coming in is, is still, in some respects, in terms of timing, it is similar um, to raising capital in that it is still an SEC registration process. Although I think that it is a, um, it is a light, slightly lighter process than it would be to do a traditional IPO. Um, and I think the other, the other issue that of course is, is a factor is, is meeting the, uh, the listing qualifications if the goal is to get a listing on the NYSE um, or, or the other exchange. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the issues is that for, from a, from an issuer's perspective, there's a couple of different categories. There's categories of companies 
that what I think has been referred to is in the in the in the industry as sort of unicorns, very well capitalized companies, probably have a relatively large shareholder base because of their existing operation, um, employees owning shares and previous financing. And there are other companies that are going to come in that, that don't have that. And those other companies that come in, they may not, they may or may not meet those listing standards. I think that the there are several different um, avenues, of course, on the New York Stock Exchange. As, 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 as to qualify for that, that over the years have become, I think, um, more accommodating to some smaller issues. There are also issues that relate to how many shareholders they have meeting what's called the distribution requirements. So I think that by and large, the view is, is that the, 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 the quotation listing or the listing without capital raising um, is, is something that is becoming more and more available to a wider variety of issuers. Um, it's still something that needs to be looked at and to determine whether you will qualify. Not every company will be able to do that. Uh, but I can give some examples of some very, some very small companies, again, in the space that I spend a lot of time in, um, have done, I guess, that's what you would refer to as the, not the quotation listing, but coming in, not doing a capital raise and finding a listing on an exchange. Some very, very small companies have been able to do that. But it does require some creativity and some efforts on the part of the company um, to meet those initial listing standards. So what I wanted to ask you uh, to make it even simpler and more, uh, more obvious, if I'm a listed company, uh, I can tap the US capital markets without raising capital, and that is a quotation listing, or I can tap the US capital markets with capital raising at that time. So my question is the following. If I go for a quotation listing, uh, which means I do not raise capital, then I understand it's more of a legal process. I do not need to uh, involve uh, an investment banker because there is no market uh, outreach to raise capital at that point. So my question is, number one, is the process from the regulatory standpoint simpler? Uh, and number two, um, I think that creates the basis for a company that gets a quotation listing later on to raise capital when and as they see fit. Am I right? Yeah. I think that's I think that's generally I think that's generally like that's generally correct. Yeah. And and the later and the later capital again is as I said before, um, there are significant advantages to being what we refer to as a seasoned issuer, someone who has been a reporting company in the U.S. Um, for some period of time, to be able to go raise that capital in the future. But yeah, what I'm trying to, to sorry, what I'm trying to ask is, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's breaking up. I'll, I'll comment after you. Go ahead, Nicholas. The question that I wanted to ask is, if I go for a quotation listing, no capital raising versus do a listing with capital raising, is there a difference in the regulatory process or no? Well, Alex, maybe I'll, I'll let yeah, from the refer end, to you because that's a new yeah, opportunity yeah, from, I know that you wanted yeah, to. From, let me just comment, make a comment from, you mentioned something interesting before and then I answer your question. We have seen many companies that are based outside the US that actually use the quotation system to access liquidity in the US without capital raisings. They did that without bankers. They did with their own, with the lawyers and the advisors to do this process. And those companies that have been extremely successful. And they later on, as Ted mentioned, you know, they decided to raise capital. 
the company was already registered with the SEC, so the process is much easier. But there is something very important. The company is already traded in the US. The exactly. shares is priced in US dollar. The, the company has already a strong US shareholder base. So it's much easier to market the deals once you are listed in the US. And I have great examples that companies actually have done that because they thought by the time of the quotation, I do not want to raise capital. I want to build this infrastructure around me in the US before I tap to the market. So it is actually the path that a lot of companies do. They do the quotation, later on, they can raise capital. Uh, to answer your question about requirements, uh, for a foreign private issuer, the NYSE's corporate governance requirements are actually more flexible than if you were a domestic issuer. Um, FPIs, foreign private issuers, they could rely on home country practices. And uh, whatever you do in your home country, the NYSE will accept that as long as you disclose the difference between what the NYSE requires for domestic issuers versus what you currently, what you are required in your home country. So it's a disclosure you put on your website and also you add in your form 20F, the end of report or the 40F in case you're a Canadian company with the SEC on an annual basis. The NYSE also requires to have the companies to have semi-annual shareholder uh, investor meeting, uh, I'm sorry, report on a semi-annual basis. In the past, we would ask companies to follow home country, but now we are requesting that companies at least twice a year, they this, you know, they report their earnings. Uh, but if in the local market you have to do on a quarterly basis, the NYSE will expect you to do the same, but the requirements is twice a year. There is a component that comes from Sarbanes-Oxley, which is the uh, audit committee requirements. The NYSE will ask that a company listed with us, doesn't matter if it's domestic or a foreign private issuer, they must have an independent audit committee in place at the time of listing. So the process for us, if you're a non-US company, a foreign private issuer is a little bit easier if you are a domestic issuer. And the NYSE also accepts IFRS. You don't have to convert your accounting into US GAAP and you don't have to comply with all those requirements that the NYSE asks for domestic issuers in terms of corporate governance. And I would just add, I mean, I agree with all of that, of course, I think on the regulatory side, you know, what, 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 what we see with our clients, and we do have a number of foreign private issuer clients, um, I think on the governance side, the, the most of the clients and, and, and it's based on the expectations of, of investors today will comply substantially uh, with the governance standards that are going to be applicable to US domestic companies. I agree uh, with Alex. I think that on the disclosure opportunities or the disclosure uh, requirements, um, there are some differences there, particularly with proxy disclosures. Um, Section 16, which is a whole different issue, but it's reporting in real time insider trading issues. Th those, there are some significant differences um, that are very advantageous to the foreign private issuers and, and that it is, um, common for them to take advantage of, of those of those differences. Well, 
building on what you both said, uh, what I take away, I mean, looking at it from a commercial point of view, uh, we are talking to a number of companies that are eyeing the U.S. capital markets, and some of them are concerned about raising capital because the valuations may not be uh, the, the right ones at a particular moment in time. So I think the quotation listing, as you both pointed out, allows the company to become part of the U.S. capital markets, position themselves on the runway, and then take off with the capital raising whenever they see fit in the future. And uh, clearly, I think uh, from my experience, uh, when you are part of the U.S. capital markets, you open yourself to a very large investor pool. You get research coverage from the U.S.-based uh, uh, houses. So you really are playing in a very different uh, field. And closing, uh, for this particular question, I take away that... Uh, foreign issuers, at least at the beginning, have uh, lighter, I would say, uh, practice to conform with in terms of corporate governance and disclosure, uh, even though clearly the market expects them to have very high standards anyway. So did I sum it properly or? I think from my perspective, that's a very good summary. And I think the only other thing I think I would add is that on the listing in, in the listing in the absence of capital is that publicly traded stock is a currency. It can be a currency. And I think that's also an attraction um, for, for issuers um, to be able to have that as another option to be able to use, whether it's for M&A transactions, uh, asset acquisitions, but that liquidity that a listing gives you is obviously a necessary requirement from that. And it's another one of the advantages. And I, exactly. Okay. And, and also, a lot of companies, the global companies, they have employees in the US. By having shares traded in the US, you can use the shares in ADR form, ordinary shares, as part of the compensation plan, stock option plan. So that's very attractive to global companies which have a presence in the US in order to retain employees and even attract talent. So companies do that from different reasons not only for liquidity, but if Ted mentioned a great point, the M&A route, super important to you know, having the shares here, dollar denominated securities. So let's go now to, uh, to another topic. And I think the, uh, this has the NYSE brand uh, in terms of pioneering this uh, concept. I'm a private company. I'm not listed anywhere. So there is a way for me to become public uh, without going through the traditional IPO process. So let's start with the Alex, since I think the uh, NYSE pioneered this concept and then have Ted uh, join in. So, yeah, and, and Nicholas, uh, for a private company, there are different routes to access the US capital markets. The NYSE you know, we've been very creative and actually we're disrupting the market um, because we are offering different opportunities for our issuers. And I think what is what is making the NYSE so relevant now in this discussion is the fact that we built this product called direct listing and it became available two years ago when we listed Spotify in the US capital markets. So it was a huge transaction it took us a long time to go through the SEC review process. I was personally involved in the, uh, throughout the process. And uh, it was very dynamic and interesting because Spotify honestly did not want to raise capital. 
they have plenty of capital, but they want to be a publicly traded company because, I mean, very high level, uh, they're way more nuanced to this, but high level, they had plenty of employees that held shares in the company. They received it as some type of stock uh, compensation, year bonus, small investors that enter Spotify in the very early stage of the company, and they want the liquidity. So how do you fix that? So direct listing was the solution. And uh, we were able to do this with the SEC. Spotify, as I said, was the first company to do it. And we create this mechanism where a privately held company that met the standards that the SEC approved of at least $250 million of free float, like all those investors together uh, with valuation by either a private market trading on Spotify that occurred before. Private market trading is not in the public market. It is really done within a, um, an investment bank infrastructure for high net worth individuals where there is a price over there. So you can use, you could use, in the case of Spotify, there are quite a few um, markets trading Spotify privately. So you're able to get that price uh, look at the number of potential shareholders that own those shares and figure out that it was more than $250 million, which was the minimum requirement to be able to conduct this transaction as a direct listing. Spotify met the standards. So we had a price, uh, which if I remember correctly, was $132 was the reference price. And that's what we did. We posted on at the opening, you need the designated market maker at the NYSC to conduct this. This is not an electronic process because there is no one there to help with liquidity. There is no underwriter. There is no stabilization agent. This is organic. And the market will dictate if that is the correct price and the demand for those shares. So the moment that you post the price, investors from Spotify, you'll be able to sell them. And any investor could start buying those shares. And the beauty of the NYSE in this mechanism, that is our market maker looking at supply and demand, determining the correct price to open the stock. And for Spotify case, took four hours and a half, took a long time, but you're able to find the correct price where investors could participate on the trading of Spotify. Why it's relevant? Well, it is really an organic process where you don't have the interference on anyone in the pricing of the stock and the liquidity. So you don't have the bankers, you know, selling to a certain group of investors and to a certain degree helping, you know, figuring out the price that sometimes, you know, we saw this year certain companies they price at a certain level. When they open in the public market, there was a huge jump. Direct listing correct for that because you don't have the market who actually dictate the price. So Spotify, first day of listing was the fifth largest auction ever on the NYSE in terms of liquidity. So very successful transaction. And we're starting to see other companies looking into this. But then amplifying uh, what Alex said the uh, the direct uh, listing uh, is uh, of course not only for companies of the size of Spotify 
but I guess it's available both for domestic US and foreign companies. And as I understand, because of, of the fact that for this mode, you do not raise capital, it's more of a legal process. Am I right? Well, it is. Um, look, I think I think there's some, and I think a number of, when, when we have these conversations um, with our clients initially, I just clarify, I mean, and, and Alex and, and the New York Stock Exchange have very clearly defined what a direct listing is. I think there is, um, there's a perception sort of in the market that a direct listing refers to something that is uh, obtaining a listing without getting without getting capital. And so just to sort of clarify this, that, that is the distinction because what you've said is, which is that a direct listing is a brand new, a quotation listing as we're referring it to here is an issue where there is some other trading market. And I think that Alex, as you mentioned, the pricing um, is really one of the main issues of where you're going out, where you don't have a book building process and investors coming in to set that price, where you open that trading is always one of the difficult things to do. Um, and I think that something that on the quotation side, and I'm sorry, Nicholas, I'm deviating a little bit. On the quotation side, it doesn't necessarily have to be another listing on regulated exchange like the LSE, but there needs to be some other market to, to, have to, to, to establish the price to come in. Um, Coming back though to your to your direct question, um, yes, I mean the, the answer is, is is that the direct listing, um, same as the quotation, it is a it is it is still a, a legal process. The, the compliance and meeting the requirements of the of the exchange, of course, um, is 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 paramount. But the SEC process, there is still a registration process to come in. Um, and register with the SEC. It's a slightly, it's slightly different. You're doing an offering versus you're actually registering existing shares that are already in existence as they selling uh, holders. But from a timing perspective and from a level of disclosure perspective, it is going to be similar um, to the issuers that are looking that are looking to do that. And I think that you know, I think that the point that I would make, I think that as far as the size of the companies coming in, uh, I mean, look the the the, the direct listing route is obviously not going to work for for all companies. I mean, small, much smaller companies are are not going to be able to initially satisfy that. Um, but I think that that's just. I don't think that was an oversight. I think that that's just what that is. There are certain companies that are going to be suitable to sort of start and have this initial pricing and have the liquidity among holders because on day one there are no other holders very small or startup companies that don't have that probably are, are not, well, they, they're definitely not going to be able to meet those qualifications, um, but they probably wouldn't be suitable for that trading on day one anyways, I think. And, and, but, I, but I do think, again, those companies can do, uh, come in and do the quotation listings. And as I alluded to before, there are some very small companies that have done that, um, who have been able to establish the existing pricing uh, basically through private market or, or, or OTC uh, trading platform um, in order to satisfy the exchange requirements is to set that pricing on day one. So Alex, if I understand correctly, one of the hurdles for a private company that is not listed anywhere to go for a direct listing is they, they have to have already the minimum number of shareholders that would allow them to qualify once they list. 
And what is that number, 400? Yes, that's a very, it's absolutely right. I failed not to mention that in my remarks. Yes, you have to have at least 400 round lot holders that if you multiply the, the holdings by the share price that is either the price that is traded in a private market, not in a public market, private market, or in case the company does not have a private market, which could happen, a valuation analysis conducted by a third party that will do two actually valuation analysis that will determine the potential price for those shares so that we can multiply the number of shareholders by this, let's use potential price and that value has to be above $250 million. But what's going to happen, Nick, this is a reference price. That is what we believe that the company should start the process, right? What's going to happen once you post on the trading floor, supply and demand will dictate the correct price. And what we have seen so far, the reference price is very, it's very aligned of how the market reacts to the company. Spotify, the Delta was not huge. The reference price, I'm just, it was 132. They opened, the company opens at 145. So it was very well aligned to how it was trading in the private market, how it was, we thought was the, the, the correct reference price. Of course, work with the company, with the regulators to be able to post the price as the reference price to start the bidding process, the auction. And it, I mean, I had to make a very good point. Direct listing is not for everyone. Uh, so far, we have done four uh, Spotify, Slack, <clears throat> Palantir, and Asana. I think Palantir and Spotify is a very well known brand. Slack, not a, that much. And Asana, it is not as well known in the market. But uh, having said that, we're starting to engage with companies that are in the tech, consumer tech, that they see this as an opportunity. So we might see not only big brands like Palantir and Spotify, but companies a little bit smaller with less brand recognition coming through this path. And we might see non-US companies also considering this, but I think from the non-US side, it has to be a company with a bigger presence in the local market that they probably have enough uh, uh, employees, early stage investors, that they can use them. They can use them eventually to create ADRs to be able to start trading the US through the same process as Spotify and others do. So, Ted, if I look at the alternatives, traditional IPO, we know the process from a legal perspective. Dual listing uh, or quotation listing. Again, I'm already public. So I have already an accumulated uh, infrastructure of regulatory compliance and disclosure. And then the direct listing where I'm completely private and I go for the first time to get listed. Does the process, is, is the process more cumbersome for a direct listing from a regulatory and disclosure viewpoint? Because I have to prepare all those documents. Whereas in the dual listing, I already have them because I'm on, on, on an exchange already. Well, it's obviously going to depend on what other exchange that you're on. I'll just use, you know, 
I'll use, for example, I'll use London Stock Exchange is, is something that I just picked that out of the air. Um, it, it's, it's, it's going to depend on, on how, how developed in terms of governance, in terms of corporate structure, um, honestly, even just tax efficiency. So I, I don't know, that, that's a hard question to ask. Every, every company that's looking to come into the US market has to step back and see where they are and are they ready to be public, whether or not there's a capital raise there or not. I think that the, the answer is, is that the level of disclosure and the uh, registration process with the SEC is going to, again, using the word substantially similar, there's going to be some differences and may even be on a different form, but the level of disclosure is going to be somewhat consistent for each of those three options. And the ongoing reporting requirements for a company once it is listed are going to be the same regardless of how they came to be listed and be reported. So I think it depends. I think to your point is a company that has been through the process on a regulated exchange certainly is going to have an advantage in that they are um, have been a public company, have the reporting uh, procedures largely in place, presumably are going to have financials that are largely in place. Um, so it is going to be an easier process for them. But it is still the, the level of disclosures in the US markets are not going to be different uh, depending on which of those three routes they choose. It's interesting by the way that of course, even though size is, is an issue, we've seen a, you know, a few examples of even smaller companies uh, doing direct listings. But let, let me go to Alex. Um, Alex, you pioneered the concept of direct listing, which you know, at the beginning was without capital raising. But I understand you're also working out on an option to have a direct listing with capital raising. Can you yeah, elaborate? Correct. And uh, we are working with the SEC to finalize, hopefully, an approval for this new rule. Um, it is the possibility of a company to raise capital at the time of listing. It will be a primary offering that the company will be able to do at the same time that they start to trade on the NYSE. We still don't have the green light from the SEC, so I cannot comment too much on it, but it's gonna be the next step, what do we call direct listing 2.0, because we'll be able to offer the opportunity for the company to conduct an offering in conjunction with the direct listing. So I think this will allow smaller companies, potentially non-US companies, to access the US capital markets using this version of the direct listing. And, um, and we came, came up with this because there was the feedback that we heard from issuers as we were discussing direct listing with bankers, with lawyers, with their input to build the 2.0 version of the direct listing. So stay tuned. As soon as I, we get the approval, I hope Nicholas invites us again, myself, and Ted to talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. We we're going to have another webinar on that. And so yeah. we, we are, uh, you know, waiting. Um, so now let me go to the next uh, topic, SPACs. We have seen uh, a significant uh, increase in the activity of SPACs uh, as a means of uh, getting a US listing. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how this works uh, what is the process? Maybe I can start with uh, Ted and then go to Alex. Sure, no, I'm happy to. I think um, 
I think I think that first slide you had, Alex, showed the SPACs of what they're they're fifty they're fifty percent of the activity uh, during twenty. So a, a SPAC essentially, which SPAC is a, is an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Company or Corporation. Um, the process of a SPAC in its, in its shortest form is it is a company that goes out and raises capital in a public offering and lists on the New York Stock Exchange or another exchange at the time of the IPO. Um, that capital is, is put into a trust account that is set aside from other certain operating expenses. It's basically set aside. It can only be used um, in connection with an acquisition or a merger of an operating company, usually a private operating company, at some point in the future. And the typical lifespan as a SPAC is that they will do the IPO and then they will go out and they will commence the, the research and the analysis and identify a target, target operating company. And they usually have between 18 and 24 months to do that. Um, and once that, once that operating target is identified and a merger agreement is, is negotiated, um, then the transaction is announced, and the in a typical structure, um, that transaction is presented to the holders of the SPAC, and they either approve it or they can reject it, but they will typically approve it. And one of the, the interesting components of the SPACs, and the SPACs have evolved over the years, but the current iteration of SPACs um, is a is a bifurcated vote. So there is a, there is an opportunity to approve or disapprove the merger transaction. There is also an opportunity for investors um, to redeem from the trust account that I referred to the money that was put into the SPAC that was put into the IPO, and that is that 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 vote, as long as the capital remains and the approval for the merger comes, uh, the merger will go forward may or may not be additional share issuances, and the investors in the SPAC will then become investors in an operating company that will remain a publicly listed company and go forward as a business. Um, in a, I'll, I'll stop there, but that is the main structure of a SPAC. So amplifying on that, we actually have a question that came uh, from Harris Antonio on this. So Alex, repeating maybe some of the, uh, of the, uh, of the things that, uh, Ted mentioned, can you take us through the dispacking process? Because raising the capital for the SPAC is step number one. Step number two is announcing the transaction. And step number three is getting the uh, shareholder vote to consummate the transaction. In which case, the SPAC, that is a financial company, becomes an operating company. So uh, Harris was asking, uh, if you can take us through the dispacking process, is there a shareholder rotation? I mean, that's more of a market practice question rather than a regulatory, but I'm sure you know. Yeah, I mean, I think Ted gave a very good explanation and you also summarized really well the process for at the exchange, we're gonna look at this as any other listing in terms of coming to the public market. We will work very closely with their advisors, the lawyers to make sure it's a smooth transaction. We'll set up a date to start trading upon uh, the mergers, the, the, the spec of the mergers approved. So work very closely with them, we set up the date and the company will start to trade. Um, in terms of rotation, I don't have data, but what we, I have heard is that, you know, a lot of those investors eventually will wanna get out 
and they will wait for the company to be publicly traded to have an adjustment on the share price. And eventually they'll go out and others will come in. So I think it will be just, it's just part of the process of becoming a publicly traded company. But what's important in this whole, like even before the DSPAC and the MA, what do we have heard from company from uh, sponsors looking for potential acquisition is that when they're looking for companies, they are looking for companies that actually they have been doing the exercise of eventually either going through the IPO route or potential SPAC. So those companies are very advanced in the process of going public. So they have a board, they have all the internal controls in place, they have some governance in place. So that facilitates the, the process. And another point that I just to add that um, is that this phenomenon is no longer a US phenomenon. We listed a SPAC from Brazil about two months ago, very well received in the market. We listed two from Hong Kong. We listed a few from China and we are working at this point with five new SPACs from Southeast Asia and one looking at Latin America. So we've seen more and more this product from a sponsor level from coming out now from outside the US. And if you look at the sponsors that are behind those SPACs, very well-known names in the market. So that helps tremendously in the marketing of the SPAC and also for the potential business combination. Alex, let me understand, when you say non-US SPACs, you mean SPACs that are listed some other place and they come here or no, the sponsors are non-US? Yeah, no, no, that's very good. When I mentioned non-US SPACs, these are SPACs that the sponsors are based outside the US, can be a, a big investor in, in Singapore or Hong Kong. Um, they come into the US as a foreign private issuer they file as a, an FPI, and they are looking for potential business combination in the U.S. They could be looking for assets in the U.S., but okay. also in local markets. Okay, perfect. So the sponsor is non-U.S. No, US. They list in the U.S., and they're looking for, for opportunities in the U.S. and globally. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the last, especially the larger specs that we have, uh, done on the NYSE. If you look at the how they're gonna, what they are looking for, it's no longer U.S. Well, they are actually very clear. We're gonna be looking at consumer companies around the world, or technology companies in Southeast Asia. I'm just, you know, give an example. So yeah, it's becoming more and more international. Yeah. Well. Adding a few, I mean, I, I, we've been involved ourselves, uh, you know, with a number of SPACs over the years and trying to reply to Harris's question. I think uh, you do have shareholder rotation in the sense that once you announce a transaction, then you know what sector you will be operating in once the transaction is consummated. So it is very normal for fundamental investors who are currently invested in that sector, but in other peer companies to take a look at the transaction and possibly come in before the vote to take advantage of any valuation arbitrage opportunity. So I, I think that's one of the beauties of the SPAC that uh, it provides a pool of capital. You find an operating company to consummate with, and then you, know, you attract new investor base in. Yeah. 
That's I think right. that's one of the points I make, Nichols. I think that's right. Um, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Is that the transaction is announced, and and so that the target is identified, and there will be people that coming coming in there. I think, as Alex just mentioned, most of the SPACs, I think, out there are are probably disclosed on day one as being a sector focus. Uh, in theory, they could go in for anything, but most will be relatively specific on what it is that they're looking at and it will reflect the expertise in the background of the sponsors in a lot of cases. Um, the other point that I would just make is these SPACs, because of the redemption rights that I was just discussing, these SPACs trade in a very narrow band um, up through that shareholder vote because the value that they basically are trading what the redemption value is. It's almost, it's, it's, it's a fixed income instrument. Um, the, other, the other just point I think that's relevant to that in investors coming in and coming out, um, we're asking about coming in, but there, there, there is redemptions. There are very often redemptions that are, are people are looking to take the money out. Um, there's another component of, of SPACs, which is our sort of warrant coverage, which also affects the trading to some extent. But the point that I would make is that a lot of these SPACs, particularly recently, have been accompanied by um, additional capital raises just before the merger in terms of pipe transactions. And mostly uh, institutional investors are coming into that, but a lot of these SPACs are raising relatively large amounts in, in terms of, of comparison to what their initial IPO proceeds were even um, in that pipe round in order to facilitate the merger that they have negotiated. By the way, we have exceeded the hour, so I'll try to be quick so we don't go, but it's been a very interesting discussion. Um, one of the questions we have that came through it says, uh, from Katerina Stathopoulou, it says, I would like a clarification on the quotation listing. If I'm listed on OTC outside the U.S., do I need to have 400 shareholders in order to do a quotation listing? I don't know who would like to... Uh, from, uh, yeah, from, from my, I can answer the same answer. from the NYSC's perspective, but uh, maybe, Ted, I mean... Yes, I mean, the, the, what we call the distribution requirements, the short answer to that is yes. There are some, how exactly those are calculated or, or is, is something that to look at, but the short answer is yes. Yeah. It is a requirement uh, to have that. Correct. Yeah, from the NYSU's perspective, absolutely 400 round lot holders. And the going to another question quickly. Uh, North the, American uh, investors. Sorry. No, no, sorry. So, uh, Alex, if I may ask you, uh, NASDAQ recently said it will strengthen its listing standards for Chinese companies. Do you plan to do the same at the NYSE? No, actually, we were very excited to hear that uh, from our competitor because we do have the highest standards of corporate governance in the world and see other exchange, in this case, NASDAQ and others, actually looking at us and adjusting some of their requirements to be a little bit closer to our standards, I think is, is positive. But we do not have any intention to change our standards. We believe what we have, it's, it's the best in the world. And companies look at the exchange as the you know, most prestigious, most liquid, and with the highest standards. Man, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mean it as a competitive uh positioning question, I wanted to find out if uh, the the listing standards are kind of uniform in a way, every exchange has their own, how does it work? The, you know, when you look NYSE versus NASDAQ, um, 
for domestic issuers, we have a few things that we require companies to do that NASDAQ does not. Uh, one example is to have an internal audit function, which is required by domestic issuers. But when you look at non-US issuers, as I said earlier, we're relying on home country practices, but we do require companies to report on a semi-annual basis, but we do not require non-US companies to have an internal audit function. I see, okay. So then as a closing question, uh, I would like to ask both of you, what do you see for the rest of, um, I mean, we are practically at the end of 2020. What do you see for the market ahead um, next year in terms of activity, sectors, more international interest, more US activity? I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but as you know, pretending that we do, what do you see? <laughs> I go for, I'm happy to start. I think, I mean, look, I think I, I the, in one word, I think optimistic. I, I think as, as Alex started, I think the resilience of the markets through, through 2020 and the pandemic um, ha, has been encouraging um, considering I think what people may have feared back in March. I think that the, there's been a lot of uncertainty both in terms, I think of this, this election um, has I think had somewhat of a, of, maybe not a chilling effect, but it's sort of a, a delaying effect. Some people see how that has gone through. And I think by and large, that is now behind us. There is obviously a lot of optimism, I think, in the markets um, that we've seen just in terms of, of COVID. I, I think it's, you know, to somewhat, it, it's, it's somewhat to me is, 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 is surprising. I think there's still a long way to go, obviously, on this, but the news coming out of the pharmaceutical space is promising. So I, I think that it, it's, it's, it's going to be a hard first half of 21 still, there's no doubt. But I think that I'm very optimistic is that the fundamentals are strong. I think it will be sector specific as to where it goes. But I think that um, I think that uh, 21 will be, continue to be a, a good year um, for these markets. I really do. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with Ted. For more like, a, you know, if you look more specific in sectors, regions, um, U.S. market, we'll see a lot of technology companies coming to the market, big names that you know, that you interact with on a daily basis. We'll see those transactions coming to the market uh, and they will come very quickly because they wanna make sure they are in the public domain uh, to be able to, you know, many reasons. Um, we'll see direct listings. That will be another option the company will be looking at. And from, when you look at sectors, it will be tech, tech, Tech. I think tech consumer, consumer tech, a lot of fintech, tech related companies that I would be the theme for the first uh, half of 2020. We'll see biotech companies uh, just because of the COVID situation and just the maturity of the biotech space. So we're going to see more companies tapping to the market to be able to help them grow and develop new products, etc. In terms of regions, uh, China will continue to provide, uh, be our second market, US first, second market China, but I'm very bullish on Israel, uh, especially in the tech space, uh, to a certain degree, Russia, uh, and in Latin America would be Brazil. Wonderful, I'd like to thank you both. It has been yep. 
We have been, uh, we have this now for an hour and a quarter, uh, indicative of the depth of the discussion, the quality and the interest. Thank you both very much. And Alex, I look forward and tend to the next one. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day and thank you everybody for, thank you. Uh, for being with us. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Nikos. Bye-bye.